those of us who are arguing for uh, greater equity are not necessarily arguing for perfect equality. Uh, and indeed, uh, the Quran there is a very explicit verse that says, um, God has bestowed more wealth on some of you than on others. So those who have been preferred should not give away their wealth to the others so that they will be equal because that would be a sign of ungratefulness. So we're not seeking perfect equality of outcome, but there is an absolute minimum that is required. Welcome to the Acton Vault podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, we're bringing you a panel from our recent Poverty Cure Summit. Poverty Cure Summit provided an opportunity for participants to listen to scholars, human service providers, and community leaders address the most critical issues we face today that can either exacerbate or alleviate poverty. These speakers join panel discussions to discuss the legal, economic, social, and technological issues pertaining to both domestic American poverty and global poverty. Rooted in foundational principles of anthropology, politics, natural law, and economics, participants gained a deeper understanding of the root causes of poverty and identified practical means to reduce it and promote human flourishing. This panel examines charity in the Muslim tradition. The featured panelists are Ali Salman, a founding member and CEO of the Islam and Liberty Network. His 2021 book, Islam and Economics, a primer on markets, morality, and justice, was published by the Acton Institute. He's an economist and a public policy expert based in Pakistan, where he heads a free market think tank, Prime. Mahmoud El-Gamal is a professor of economics and statistics, a Baker Institute Rice faculty scholar, and also holds the chair in Islamic Economics, Finance, and Management at Rice University. And the moderator is Abdullah bin Hamid Ali, the founding director of the Lamppost Education Initiative. He serves as an associate professor of Islamic law and prophetic tradition at Zetuna College in Berkeley, California. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, and welcome to Poverty Cure Summit 2022, uh, which has been hosted by the Acton Institute. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Abdullah Ali, I'm a uh, associate professor of Islamic law and prophetic tradition at Zaytuna College located in Berkeley, California. Uh, this particular panel is entitled Muslim Charity. Uh, so here today, we're, we're here today to speak about the concept known as zakat. Uh, and we have with us two esteemed Muslim economists. Uh, and I'll take the time to introduce both of them. And so we're really looking forward to engaging in this particular topic today. Uh, first, we have uh, Mr. Ali Salman, who is a member of the Islam and Liberty Network. Uh, Ali is a founding member and CEO of, this, of the Islam and Liberty Network. In 2021, his book, Islam and Economics, A Primer on Markets, Morality and Justice, was published by Acton Institute. He is an economist and a public policy expert 
based in Pakistan, where he heads a free market think tank, Prime. Ali has worked as a consultant for major international development organizations, public sector organizations, and nonprofits, and has also worked in the government, academia, and the private sector. He was awarded a Fulbright Scholarship and his Royal Netherlands Fellowship and a Charles Wallace Fellowship. All, uh, Ali also holds a master's degree in economics, public policy, and business administration. Um, he also writes regularly for Express Tribune, a partner publication of the New York Times. And I also add that I've had the pleasure of uh, writing the introduction to his work, Islam and Economics, a primer on Marcus morality and, and justice. Um, our other panelist uh, is an esteemed guest as well from Rice University. Uh, this is Dr. Mahmoud Agamal, who is professor of economics and statistics, a Baker Institute Rice faculty scholar, and also holds the chair in Islamic economics, finance, and management at Rice University. He has previously served as chair of the economics department from 2008 to 2011. He also sits on the editorial board of the Review of Middle East Economics and Finance and serves as a research fellow and on the scientific committee for the Economic Research Forum in Cairo. Professor Al-Gamal received his PhD from Northwestern and has previously held posts at the U.S. Department of the Treasury, uh, the University of Wisconsin at Madison, the International Monetary Fund, and the California, California Institute of Technology. His areas of expertise include international economics and finance, econometrics, uh, behavioral economics, and Islamic law and finance. And of course, uh, just as with Adi, I've had the pleasure of uh, teaching uh, from uh, Professor Mahmoud's book uh, on Islamic finance in my Islamic uh, commercial law class at Zaytuna College. So this is a great pleasure and honor to have the opportunity to uh, share or moderate this panel with two, these two gentlemen. So gentlemen, I'd like to welcome both of you to this particular panel. Um, so we want to speak about the word zakat and the concept itself. And the, the, the first question fundamentally is what is zakat and what we, what we call Muslim charity. Sometimes people translate it as tithe and, or compulsory charity, many different uh, translations we've seen. Uh, but we want to get your uh, opinion about what zakat is. And of course, feel free to offer any additional comments that you feel are appropriate at this time. So we can be begin with uh, Mr. Ali Sanman. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Abdullah Ali. Uh, thank you, Professor Mahmoud. And, and thank you also, of course, to Acton Institute once again for organizing a very important uh, summit on a subject uh, which is of global significance. Um, and when it comes to uh, Islam, uh, I think this is very important to understand uh, what, uh, what teachings, what lessons, what policy prescriptions Islam has to offer when it comes to uh, poverty alleviation, poverty eradication, and in fact, uh, prosperity. And uh, the topic uh, today is, of course, uh, zakat. Um, although I would like to uh, say at the outset that zakat is one of the uh, tools which uh, Islam and an Islamic economic framework uh, you know, suggests for general level of prosperity. But today we will talk about uh, zakat only. 
Um, and um, uh, to begin with, I would uh, offer uh, a working definition of, of zakat uh, based on the understanding derived from the Islamic sources, uh, historically speaking. Uh, and, and first of all, I'd like to say that uh, uh, you know, Islamic faith is built on five pillars. Uh, first is, is shahada, that is professing oneness of God and, and Muhammad as messenger of God. Uh, prayers five times uh, a day, zakat, which, about which we are going to talk today. Fasting for a month uh, every year. And once in a lifetime, pilgrimage to Mecca for those who can afford. So zakat is one of the five pillars of Islamic faith. And according to which uh, Muslims who possess net assets above a defined threshold are obliged uh, to pay 2.5% to 10% proportionately on their assets and incomes uh, as assessed on an annual basis. Uh, and the expenditure is designated for predefined categories as defined in Quran itself. Uh, I would also like to say that uh, zakat is uh, not a charitable contribution. It's not a voluntary contribution. Um, and um, it is, uh, a compuls is a compulsion. It is an obligation on Muslims who can afford. And uh, at least historically, uh, zakat uh, started uh, as, as a practice by, under the state when Muslims uh, found their first community and uh, we can say first government in, in Medina, uh, zakat was being administered by the state, both in terms of collection and in terms of its uh, disbursement. Um, one of the important point here to be mentioned is that zakat is proportional. That is, it does not take the principle of increasing the rate with the increases in quantity of zakatable item like taxable. So the word zakatable in the same sense, uh, the applicable rate on an item is constant and which applies to all uh, the items which come under zakat uh, applicability. Uh, in, in Quran um, and Islamic sources, uh, two words have been used uh, interchangeably, uh, though there is, I think, a lot of rich debate here. Uh, that is the word zakat and, and sadaqat. And, um, and zadaqat are sometimes also used for voluntary contribution, but in, um, in Quranic verses and in Prophet Muhammad's uh, sayings, uh, sadaqat has been used to, uh, to actually symbolize uh, zakat, uh, which is the compulsory taxation. Uh, for instance, um, if, you, if you look at the words of Quran, uh, one of the verse says in Surah Tawbah, chapter 9, uh, of their wealth take sadaqah, that is zakat in here, so that thou mightest purify and sanctify them. Uh, so it is an order. Um, which is mentioned in, in Quran. And also in, one, uh, in many instances uh, in Prophet Muhammad's life, we hear that um, he sent uh, commissioners um, or collectors of zakat to different tribes and different uh, even countries. For instance, when he was sending Muad, his companion uh, to Yemen, the Prophet said, 
inform them that God has prescribed sadaqah. So he was mentioning zakat, but he was using the word sadaqah on their funds to be taken from their rich. So that was the kind of the compulsion and obligation which zakat brought on Muslims in very early stages of the community formation and government formation. Uh, and even so, after um, uh, uh, you know the the first caliph of uh, Islam, uh, Abu Bakr Siddiq, uh, who was appointed as first caliph after the death of Holy Prophet, uh, he waged a war on tribes who refused to pay zakat to the newly found state. The tribe did not refuse uh, to pay zakat uh, on its own, but they refused to pay zakat to the government. And then after a lot of consultation between uh, the, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the, amongst the Muslim leaders, it was decided that uh, the, the state has to fight uh, a war against uh, those tribes. And ultimately, those tribes uh, did pay uh, zakat. Uh, one of the important definition, uh, definitional aspect of zakat is that uh, not only the collection, uh, but also uh, the, the categories where zakat is spent have been explicitly mentioned in chapter number nine, verse 60, in which there are eight heads of zakat, uh, which include uh, poor, uh, the needy, workers in zakat administration, so the government employees who would be uh, employed for this purpose, uh, those whose hearts are being reconciled, freeing slaves, those under liabilities or debts in the way of God and wayfarers. So obviously the Islamic uh, jurisprudence uh, following Quran, uh, the practice of uh, Holy Prophet and um, centuries of Islamic jurisprudence, the fiqh uh, explains uh, in detail, uh, you know, in terms of the laws and regulation, how uh, the zakat would be administered and, um, and collected and dispersed. And as, you know, as the times have changed over centuries, uh, the fifth of zakat uh, also evolved. Um, uh, and it has been uh, you know, argued that um, it still has the potential of uh, generating sizable revenues, at least for the purposes defined in Quran for zakat uh, expenditure. So it was mentioned uh, that zakat is an important uh, poverty alleviation tool. But I, I argue that um, it's not just poverty alleviation tool. Um, it helps those who are below poverty line. It helps those who are near the poverty line. So if, if you're not absolutely poor, but you need some extra help uh, to make uh, you know, the, decent uh, the decent livings, then zakat funds can be uh, used. Uh, but also zakat can be used for freeing people from any kind of bondage or, or debt relief. Uh, like insurance uh, from from default, um, and uh, so in that sense, I would say that it is also kind of a social insurance and social protection uh, beyond uh, poverty. Um, one of the important um, aspect of uh, zakat is uh, the rates, which um, I mentioned briefly in, in the beginning. Um, historically, the, those rates were defined by the Prophet Muhammad himself on various uh, classes of assets uh, and, and wealth, uh, which were, of course, prevalent uh, 1,400 years ago 
in uh, in the Arab civilization. Uh, for instance, the agriculture and the livestock uh, were predominant. Um, so one of the basic criteria or rate was defined. It it, it is uh, understood as 2.5 percent of assets, if, which has been now um, you know according to the uh, contemporary uh, interpretation uh, also includes the income from trade and labor. Um, this will be five percent or to ten percent on agriculture produced, depending on whether it is irrigated or not irrigated, and it. Uh, these rate of zakat will go up till 20% in case of mines, minerals, and hidden treasures. Uh, so these rates, um, which uh, which we hear or read about today, were defined uh, by the prophet uh, himself. Uh, and more or less, uh, you know, the uh, most of the jurists even today uh, believe that these rates, as such, uh, cannot be changed. Um, but you know, alongside the rates, we also have a concept of a threshold, which is the minimum uh, limit. Um, you know, the side of a, a like we just have, have a, we have an income tax threshold, and, and if you're earning below the threshold, the tax does not apply. Similarly, zakat has a threshold. Um, now, this is also a debatable thing, um, but historically, the threshold was defined um, in terms of the silver which was then updated in terms of the gold, which was more prevalent as a, a basis of, of currency or monetary systems. Um, and uh, it is uh, normally argued that it is equivalent to 85 grams of gold. So if your assets after deduction of liabilities, uh, so this is our talk about net assets after deduction of as, uh, liabilities and um, personal expenditures, if your net assets crosses this limit, then zakat will become applicable. Um, for your introductory comments, we'll have more time to speak about more of those details, uh, but we also want to hear from Dr. Uh, Mahmoud, uh, Professor Mahmoud Al-Gamal. Uh, so thank you, Ali, for your comments. We'll come back to you in, in a few minutes. So I, I'm thankful to Ali for uh, introducing some of the um, uh, parameters of zakat uh, because I refer to them assuming that the audience has at least some familiarity uh, uh, but um, uh, many of you may not be Muslim and uh, that's also why I'll try to refrain from using uh, Arabic words or terms of reference but for the Muslim audience please uh, uh, know that I'm saying them in my head and, and you can say them in your head. So uh, I'll take more of a critical approach. Um, I think there's a fundamental problem in all aspects of modern Muslim life, uh, but um, the problem is particularly acute in the case of zakat. The fundamental problem is the absence of a clear demarcation between what was sacred and what was secular in Prophet's conduct and decrees. Uh, the Prophet himself expressed on multiple occasions that his personal opinions carried no sacred authority and sometimes admitted that the judgments of others on secular issues, for example, the cross-pollination of palm trees or where to set up camp uh, for the troops were superior to his own. Um, at one extreme, on matters of ritual worship, the sacred component is paramount uh, to the extent that the form, for example, the form of prayer, uh, is an essential part of the substance. Um, but at the other extreme, on matters of financial transactions, uh, jurists of all schools were unanimous that what mattered was the substance of the transaction, not the contract form. Uh, although, unfortunately, this is belied by how most 
financial jurisprudence to this day remains very much um, focused on contract form, not economic substance. Uh, but the problem uh, is particularly acute in the case of zakah, as I, as I mentioned, because it serves both as an act of worship, indeed it is the third pillar of Islam, uh, and also traditionally as the primary vehicle for both private philanthropy and public finance. Uh, the Quran almost always mentioned paying zakah immediately following the mention of performing ritual prayers on time. Uh, and that's why it is listed as the third pillar following only the demarcation of uh, the declaration of monotheism and performance of prayers uh, prior to fasting, prior to pilgrimage. Uh, this sacred aspect of zakah made it particularly difficult for jurists to adapt the rules as economic circumstances changed. Uh, as Ali had mentioned, uh, many of them, um, uh, many contemporary jurists even explicitly said in the writings on Zakat that they would have liked to adapt the rules more aggressively to meet the objectives of the law in, in this day and age, but that they were not able to do that precisely because of the ritual aspect of Zakat. As a result, um, I would argue that the institution has clearly failed to fulfill its stated economic objective, especially when it comes to fighting poverty, which, are, which is our subject today. Uh, the eradication of poverty is unmistakably the primary substantive objective of zakat. As the Quran in the verse uh, that I just mentioned, um, uh, the repentance chapter, um, verse 60, listed eight eligible categories of dis for distribution of zakat revenues. The first two are concerned with poverty, the extremely poor and those who are only relatively poor. So those who have nothing at all and those who have some resources but not enough to, uh, to live a decent life. Um, while one of the four major Sunni schools of jurisprudence opined that zakat revenue should be distributed across all eight categories, or if in this day and age, for instance, the reconciled hearts is, is no longer relevant, um, then you distribute it over the remaining seven, and the collection officers, even if they were rich, would be the first to receive their share. Uh, this is not the opinion of the majority of jurists. The, the other schools unanimously um, uh, opine that all zakat funds can be given to one category if needed, and they agree with the opinion of Imam Malik uh, that um, the order in which the eight categories are mentioned in the verse uh, matters. Um, and the, the verse starts with extreme poverty. So you have to satisfy that first before you even think about the other categories. And then once you've satisfied the eradication of extreme poverty, then you work on eradication of just relative poverty. Um, uh, so that indicates, uh, at least to me, a clearly uh, sufficientarian theory of distributive justice. Um, and there are many, many um, sayings of the prophet uh, that uh, denounce societies in which uh, the rich know that, that the poor um, are going to bed hungry um, and, and do not uh, redistribute resources in order to eradicate that poverty. Um, and yet, despite this very clear uh, mandate in Islam, uh, we find that the highest levels of poverty, malnutrition, and illiteracy are unfortunately in majority Muslim countries. Not for lack of resources to eradicate this poverty, but due to um, extreme inequality of distribution of resources and an attitude of institutions, both secular and religious. Uh, one of the main ways that Muslim jurisprudence has failed Muslim societies was its inability to expand sufficiently the categories of wealth that are subject to zakat, uh, as well as the rates uh, of zakat that are applied on each type of wealth. The minimum threshold was just kept at the weight in gold or silver, as Ali has mentioned, um, and the rates uh, have been kept 
uh, as uh, they were um, they were um, dictated by the prophet. Um, when they admitted other new forms of wealth, for instance, um, rentable property, uh, they had to argue by analogy to choose uh, a percentage, you know, 10% uh, in analogy to agricultural land or something like that. But basically, they endowed the specific weights and ratios um, that the prophet had chosen with sacred authority that he may not have intended uh, to have. It is perfectly rational to assume that the prophet in his time and, and, and economic uh, circumstances in Medina determined how much revenue he needed to deal with the poverty in the community and to finance um, his city-state budget. And then he determined um, how much wealth to exempt and what rates uh, to charge on uh, wealth above uh, that threshold. Extrapolating from this example then would not be to think, well, what, what should the threshold be for this new uh, wealth or um, you know, which rate do we attribute to the new wealth, but to actually go back to the fundamental problem and look at the distribution of wealth in the community and the distribution of need in the community, and then to determine the threshold uh, for taxable wealth and the rates that you have to charge, um, depending on the two distributions of needs and wealth. So it's fundamentally a public finance problem. Um, now, uh, the example that Ali has mentioned, um, I think makes the case for me that it was indeed a case of public finance, indeed um, a case of sovereignty that the first caliph Abu Bakr waged war against tribes that withheld the zakat, decided we're going to distribute them locally. We don't have to send them to the central treasury in Medina uh, by insisting and indeed even going to war against the opinion of uh, very important companions like the second caliph Omar. Um, who objected very strongly to this to this opinion? Uh, from Abu Bakr's point of view, this was an issue of sovereignty. This is how the public finances of the um, initially city-state um, under the Prophet, but now a growing uh, Muslim state uh, that incorporated most of Arabia and was expanding beyond the peninsula. Um, now, coming to contemporary times, it's true that some countries like Saudi Arabia uh, have collected zakat. Um, uh, and distributed it according to uh, to the rules uh, uh, written in the Quran, uh, especially they collect corporate zakat. Uh, but the the opinions of contemporaries still left many forms of wealth um, untaxed. And indeed, just to give one example, um, classical jurists and contemporary jurists all um, agreed that homes that are prepared for dwelling, i.e. Um, not real estate that you're planning to flip or trade in um, or to rent to generate income, but you know it, they are for you to, to 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 live in or for your children or summer home, etc., are exempted from zakat. Uh, and I believe that that has contributed over the centuries to uh, the culture um, of investing in relatively sterile uh, real estate uh, in the Muslim world, which has hindered its ability to industrialize and and catch up with the rest of the world. We're going to give um, Mr. Ali a, 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 um, an opportunity to chime in a little bit on some of the things that you stated, and then we'll let you speak again once uh, after that. You know, but of course, um, eventually, what we want to work up to is um, a conversation about again the causes of poverty and the the way that Islam treats poverty as well, right? You know, um, so but we, let's first hear from Ali Salman, speak for a couple of minutes, and then we'll come back to you, Dr. Professor Mahmoud. 
uh, and, and eventually we'll uh, come to a formal Q&A um, from myself, hopefully. Thank you, Dr. Ali, and, and thank you, Professor Mahmoud, for these very insightful uh, comments. I will uh, uh, try to respond to uh, not every point, uh, but maybe two or three points. I think all the points are very significant. Uh, first, I would like to submit um, uh, to the, uh, you know, if the uh, traditional Islamic jurisprudence, the fiqh, uh, to which degree it has evolved in terms of the appreciation of new classes of wealth, um, and, and asset classes, uh, you know, with the time. And, and, uh, and I would like to humbly submit that, um, I think to quite some extent, it has um, acknowledged uh, the newer forms of, of, of wealth and, and income. And, um, you know, one good book uh, in our time is of uh, Sheikh Al-Qardawi, who recently passed away, uh, who compiled um, not only uh, uh, you know comprehensive code um, of of zakat, but also provided his opinion in terms of the contemporary sources. And and taking it forward, uh, you mentioned uh, also Saudi Arabia, but for instance in Malaysia, uh, in Sudan, and some other countries, um, the zakat uh, has been somehow integrated with the with the tax code to the extent that, for instance. Uh, the zakat paid in Malaysia to the state authorities is deducted uh, from your tax liability, of course, for the Muslims. Um, and, um, you know, there was an estimation of zakat potential in Malaysia some years ago. And if it was collected, even according to traditional courts, uh, it would amount to about 75% of the total tax revenue. Uh, uh, of course, it is uh, you know not collected in in that uh, in terms of complete code. Um, now, about the general level of poverty in the Muslim world, and I think we'll have more opportunity to talk about it. Uh, I would tend to just say that there are uh, you know multiple and, and more complex reasons uh, that why uh, you are absolutely right. Why Muslim societies are generally much more poor than other societies. Um, and this has to do with the economic system, how the state uh, has taken over uh, the nationalization, uh, sort of the, uh, the the issues on trade, the issues on productivity. And there are multiple issues which actually keep uh, these societies, Muslim majority societies in particular, uh, quite poor uh, as of today. Um, and and zakat um, may not be like one of the primary reasons I would submit, um, uh, but uh, I think I totally agree with your general observation. And my last point would be uh, that um, uh, you're, you're, again, I agree uh, that, uh, you know, Muslims uh, are also encouraged to do ishtihad, the new thinking, where uh, Quran or the Prophet uh, Sunnah practice is, is silent. Uh, uh, but also in, in many instances, uh, we do have... Um, some explicit guidance in terms of, let's say, the economic management, uh, in, uh, also governance, uh, which uh, are still applicable um, with, of course, um, with the understanding of the modern applications today. Thank you. Yes, uh, Professor Mahmoud, you'd like to respond? Yeah, so uh, my general view is that um, the science of economics only evolved since the 19th century. Uh, we have we have uh, beginnings of political economy in the late 18th century, and then mostly in the 19th century, we develop economics as a separate discipline. 
Uh, and uh, in my view, Islam, Muslim jurisprudence in general has not kept up with uh, developments in social sciences. Um, there is even a question of whether the category, uh, to my mind, the category of jurist uh, is, um, is still relevant as sort of the final arbiter on uh, issues of jurisprudence. Um, in uh, fifth councils that decide on the rates of uh, zakah, on different types of wealth and so on, they may bring economists uh, as expert witnesses, but ultimately treat themselves as the supreme judiciary uh, that can decide um, uh, as if they were um, the sole heirs of the sacred authority of making these decisions and the technicalities are, are only left to um, you know, legal scholars, um, economic scholars, and so on. I think that has been a big failure of Muslim civilization um, in the modern era. Uh, and zakah is just one of these symptoms. Uh, now, going to the issue of, of whether zakah is primarily about poverty or not, I, I, I want to restress the point I had made earlier, um, uh, the opinion of Imam Malik, that um, there are many even instances where the classical jurists will, will start with the verse. The, the verse starts with um, uh, charitable contributions are only for, and then it starts with the very poor, the poor, and so on. And in many cases, they start with only the first part or only for the poor and stop, because if there's still poverty, you don't move on to the next categories, right? The most important thing is to eradicate poverty. And as an economist, I think a lot of the um, uh, Islamic jurisprudence of transactions and so on can be understood uh, using modern economic tools as efficiency enhancing. So to allow the economy to function more efficiently uh, in order for the pie, the proverbial economic pie, to 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 grow, zakah I think is almost uh, exclusively, um, if there is poverty, uh, a redistributive uh, tool, uh, and um, uh, and therefore you know you need multiple tools for multiple objectives. The idea that a single tool will serve all objectives simultaneously uh, is is just not not very good economics. Usually, you know, just like we learned now, the central bank should deal with quashing inflation that the treasury, that, that, that the, the Ministry of Finance, whichever country you're in, the, the fiscal authorities decide on, 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 on the stimulus. Uh, you know, don't try to do too many things with one instrument. So yeah, I, I think the cat is purely redistribution, redistributional uh, in cases where you still have extreme poverty before you start thinking about anything else. Yeah, this is, I think it's probably a good point to to begin a question with respect to um, whether or not zakat alone is meant to be the uh, the source of, of all of the community's um, resources for fighting poverty and things like that. And, and we haven't, you know, because the title is Muslim Charity, and we focus on the word zakat, but we had it sort of makes us have the tendency, I think, to ignore the fact that the treasury itself uh, includes multiple sources. You know, zakat is happens to be one of them. You know, so it also includes what we call the sort of spoils of war, the war spoils, ganima and fay, and then also the, the sort of the land tax kharaj, the um, you know jizya tribute and things like that. Um, um, with that in mind. Um, what would you say um, would would be the goal of zakat if we sort of 
ignore the other resources of the treasury? You know, the, the, is, the, is the goal of Zakat actually to eradicate poverty or to simply lighten the burden of the poor? Right. What is your view on that? Both of you can speak about this. So, so let, me, let me say something quickly. Um, um, first of all, the other sources of revenue that you mentioned, so Anima was there during the time of the prophet, yeah. but it was sporadic, whereas Zakat was predictable. Um, Kharaj and Ashr and, and, and so on were all added later on when the Muslim Empire included agricultural lands in Iraq and elsewhere. So this was this was stacked on. And I think that's one of the reasons that Zakat then uh, got compartmentalized into a more religious uh, uh, um, um, uh, role because um, the secular um, heads of the Fatimid or Abbasid or other um, states didn't feel that they needed zakat as much because they had all these other sources of revenue. Um, but as, and as a result, the jurisprudence uh, was not as flexible as it could have been. And it got compartmentalized like prayers, like fasting into areas where um, uh, you only reason by uh, juristic analogy, not by logical analogy. Whereas in financial transactions, when they had to, you know, start competing in Mediterranean trade and so on, they were very, very flexible and very innovative. Uh, and that was the secret of their economic success. Uh, but it was also the secret of um, the eventual failure today um, with the high degrees of poverty that that we don't know how to so, address. So, so in, your, in your view, the, the fundamental goal is to eradicate poverty or to just simply uh, lighten the burden? Of of others, you know, who actually are struggling financially. So again, a sufficientarian approach would 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 draw a poverty line, which would depend on on the society, and then to bring everybody up to that line. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not responsible to then make them prosperous, but but you have you have to eradicate poverty where the absolute line of poverty is uh, is is not yet. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Mr. Ali, you have any comments? So, so I think uh, my, my view is that uh, based on the Quranic injunction that we have discussed earlier, uh, poverty, um, you know, helping the poor people to come up to this minimum standard of living certainly is one of the important goals. But there are at least two other goals uh, which I would like to mention. And, and uh, that is, uh, for instance, uh, you know, uh, debt relief. Um, and that is uh, not necessarily about the poverty. Uh, even people who are well-off uh, can be earned under kind of a debt burden or liabilities burden, uh, which can be, you know, uh, uh, very sort of, uh, it, can, uh, it can be, uh, can really test uh, our day-to-day -day life. And zakat uh, can can be used um, as a tool uh, to help those people. Um, and there are the other, of course, uh, uh, you know, sources of expenditure which are mentioned. But I I tend to see uh, zakat not just as poverty alleviation, but a kind of a social protection and an insurance against um, you know unpredictable. Uh, financial problems that we can face in a lifetime, which is not restricted to just absolute poverty line. I think that is the kind of insurance mechanism, uh, which uh, by a tax on the on the wealth and assets of those who can afford, relatively rich people, uh, we can make sure that uh, you know people uh, who are without those assets have some degree of support uh, to rise up uh, to life again. Uh, thank you. Um, 
I also wanted to talk about the issue of the causes of poverty, uh, because um, sometimes I think we could uh, we can err in attributing the lack of development, for instance, in the Muslim world to like a single cause. Maybe it's only the jurors, maybe it's the governments. Uh, but as we know, like many things can cause poverty. You know, unemployment, of course, can be voluntary even, not only involuntary, it can be a voluntary where some people just simply are not very sort of motivated to go find work. Um, wasteful spending can can lead to poverty, as we know. I mean, of course, we our countries, most of the countries in the world are really have, have racked up a significant amount of debt, right? Especially our own country uh, here in the U.S. Um, Riba, as we know, it can be something that uh, can lead to poverty with certain people if they are uh, you know, excessively indebted. Mismanagement of wealth, natural catastrophes, just a general ignorance of science and technology that'll help you know, to improve the environment and society, brain drain, and we have scholars or people, um, experts leaving countries, uh, and then also political instability, you know. So so with that in mind, you know, what would you say are some of the ways that Islam addresses or treats poverty or, or sort of it alleviates poverty beyond, of course, we know zakat, we've been speaking about zakat, and that itself is, I guess you would say, a legislative treatment, right? to the matter of poverty, but are there any other sort of treatments or uh, other ways that Islam addresses poverty? Are there any spiritual treatments of poverty, any, any other material ways that Islam uh, chooses to treat poverty, in your opinion? If I can offer just my, my thoughts on that, um, uh, I would like to recall uh, an incident in the life of Prophet when a very poor person uh, came uh, for help uh, and actually begging. Uh, and, uh, you know, prophet asked him, what do you have in your, in your household? And he said, he has, um, uh, a, a piece of cloth and part of that he's using for wearing part of part of that is just for, you know, for sleeping and, uh, and a bowl, uh, for drinking. So he was an absolutely poor person, uh, by, by that standard. The prophet asked him that, um, you know, he did not uh, sort of give him anything directly to, to help. Um, but he asked uh, him to bring all his household and then he's offered uh, those assets for, for sale, like an auction. And then another companion uh, offered a price uh, and the prophet actually sold. And, and in, it is reported it was sold in, in two dirhams. So one, he, he gave back uh, to his family for food and water. And the other dirham he gave back to the person who was begging for actually buying um, an axe, he went back to to woods, and so he was doing hard work, and he's starting, uh, uh, you know, investing uh, his labor with a small amount of uh, instrument and tool, and starting earning his living. So I think the uh, the, the lesson uh, was very clear that you know hard work, and then eventually uh, a trade which was encouraged, um, and as we have discussed earlier, in, in also in, in my book. Uh, other instruments like like price freedom, uh, minimum uh, taxation, and we can we can talk about that. So there were, I think, uh, many more uh, like uh, important instruments uh, which were deployed in profit time to uh, to encourage economic activity in general. Um, because of course, you know, we we have to take care of the poor, but we have to encourage general level of economic activity. 
which is possible uh, through these uh, various instruments. And, and that is something which I believe that uh, Muslim societies in the contemporary world uh, are not practicing enough and uh, we rely and look uh, too much upon the government uh, to, to help, which is becoming a cause of the problem. Thank you. Uh, Professor Mahmoud? Um, an interesting aspect of um, uh, Muslim jurisprudence is that um, the loan contract was taken out of the category of commutative contracts and placed in the category of charity. So the, the word loan is only mentioned in the Quran in the context of lending to God, and you receive uh, 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 multiple reward, and therefore you don't seek a return on the, on the principal, you don't seek interest, and um, if the person can't repay, then you're essentially donating the full uh, principle. And Abdullah Masoud, one of the uh, most knowledgeable uh, companions of the Prophet, who started the rational um, uh, school of jurisprudence in Iraq that later Abu Hanifa and others uh, were, were students of, um, his view was uh, that I'd rather lend a silver coin, get it back, and lend it again rather than give it once and for all as charity. And um, I, I was delighted to see um, a couple of Islamic centers here in the United States, uh, most recently in New Jersey, that created credit unions tied to their masjid uh, so that uh, people can put their zakah money, instead of giving it once and for all, they give it to this credit union that then can lend the funds, um, in a sense, helping uh, members of the community who could possibly raise themselves by the bootstraps, essentially receive this credit from the community to start a small business, uh, educate their children, and so on, with the expectation that they'll pay back, and then these funds will be available for the next poor person who needs them. So there are other instruments, um, but they weren't integrated appropriately in the institution of zakah, and I think it's it's here in the West that some uh, professional Muslims have thought we should utilize the new institutional frameworks that are available to us in order to use the lever leverage the funds more efficiently for helping our poor. Uh, thank you. So lastly, I'd like the, the two of you to have a look at a, an image uh, that I have here. Um, this is what they call a meme. And um, in this meme, um, we can see that there are the two words, equality and equity. Uh, and uh, it's become very popular, you know, today, the sort of term uh, equity is uh, utilized to, to define a civilizational goal, I guess you would say, which fundamentally seems to mean uh, equality of outcome, right? And uh, what sort of, you know, what does this particular meme, this picture make you think about and um, how Islamic do you believe it is? And what do you think is missing? from this picture? So, yeah. Um, yeah, so my worry about this picture is that um, it sets up an unfair straw man. Um, those of us who are arguing for uh, greater equity are not necessarily arguing for perfect equality. Uh, and indeed, uh, the Quran, there's a very explicit verse that says, um, God has bestowed more wealth on some of you than on others. So those who have been preferred should not give away their wealth to the others so that they will be equal because that would be a sign of ungratefulness. So we're not seeking perfect equality of outcome, but there is an absolute minimum that is required. So the picture shows the person in the wheelchair who can't see the game at all. 
Now, the resources that it takes in order to get them to have the same experience of seeing it live may be so taxing to the rest of society that maybe equity is affected by broadcasting the game on TV and letting the person, they're not getting the exact same experience, but they're getting something. Uh, in terms of minimum resources, which has been my argument that I think uh, the, the ethos of the verse of the eight categories of Zakat, as Ivan Medic has argued, is sufficientarian. You first satisfy the absolute uh, minimum uh, requirements for a decent life for your poorest, and then you think about other things. So we're not arguing about equity, equality of outcome. Uh, if society is so poor that everybody is going to be below the poverty line, then nobody's going to pay Zakat and the institution becomes moot. But if there are people who are above the line, then they should give until everybody reaches that line. And then uh, you start spending on other things um, rather than just poverty alleviation. Uh, thank you. Uh, Mr. Ali, any thoughts? Uh, well, I think more or less on the same line here with Professor Mahmoud. Uh, you know, watching a game in, in the stadium, uh, if that is an outcome, I'm not sure uh, that uh, everyone would have, you know, would assign the same value having that outcome and and perhaps uh, we can leave it also the uh, to the human agency to the choice um, uh, rather than bringing let's say a, th a third agency like, like state but I would like to add something here and that is the the concept of uh, human cooperation and and so um, you know uh, let's for a moment uh, forget about a state uh, redistribution and and those kind of instruments and let's think about uh, these three human beings who are in the picture. How can they help uh, one another? Uh, can the child be picked up by someone who is outside the wall? Yes, uh, the child can be picked up. The person on the wheelchair can also, uh, maybe it is difficult, uh, you know, humanly not possible to maybe pick him up, but uh, somehow arrangements can be made by human cooperation uh, to achieve some degree of equality. Uh, but again, I think watching uh, the game may not be equally desirable outcome for all of us. Yes, thank you. Yeah, and so it seems that um, something that seems to be missing is the element of charity, right? Um, and uh, you know, and um, and I probably would add that that Islam encourages gratitude, right? That we live in a very ungrateful world, and I think that that is also a way to address poverty and 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 um, disparity in outcomes and things like that. At any rate, that's all the time we have. I really appreciated this time together with you. Hopefully we have enough other opportunities to uh, to speak and to um, to learn more about one another and what we uh, we all sort of um, we deal with every day in our lives, in our in our professions. Uh, so we thank the viewers for tuning in today uh, to um, to this special uh, program brought to you by Acton Institute. And we hope to see you as well in the future. And thank you for your support. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Thank Ali. And thank you, Professor Mahmoud. Thank you both. Thank you so much. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer 
at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.